Carlo Calodi. Carlo Calodi was a very talented uh, writer. He was a satirist, a translator, a really gifted translator. 1881, uh, Carlo wrote a short story for his friend. His friend was a, um, an editor of a, of a magazine, uh, a newspaper. Uh, it was a story about a little wooden puppet. And uh, the editor and Collodi just enjoyed this silly little story, but the editor decided to publish it in the children's section of his newspaper. They, they wrote, they called it This Bit of Foolishness, um, but the story was a huge hit. Children loved it, so Collodi added more tales. And between 1881 and 1882, he serialized what became known as Le Aventura de Pinocchio, The Adventures of Pinocchio. 1883, it was all combined into a book, and the book sold like crazy. One of the great literary successes of all time. Get this. In the almost 150 years since The Adventures of Pinocchio came out, that book has been translated into 240 languages. Thousands of editions in 240 tongues. And as you know, the story has been turned into hundreds of movies and plays, the most famous being Walt Disney's take on Pinocchio. Now, here's something you may not know. Walt Disney changed important aspects of the story. Uh, Disney was very true to the original adventures, much more so than most adaptations of Pinocchio, but, but there are a few significant shifts he made for the 1940 film. Let me show you just three of them. In the original story, did you know this? The original story, Pinocchio accidentally kills Jiminy Cricket. Oh, yeah. He's a cricket. What do you do to cricket? Uh, they're irritated. Yeah, okay. Anyway, Disney dropped that for the film. Uh, second thing, Pinocchio originally fell asleep by the fire. In the story, he fell asleep by the fire, and his little wooden feet burned off. They, yeah, he had to stumble around on pegs. That was amputated for the film. Um, I couldn't resist. In the original, this is the most dark one of all. In the original series, chapter 15 ends very graphically and gruesomely. Pinocchio, get this, Pinocchio is hanged for his multitude of sins. Oh, yeah, killed him off, right? Now, later, later, Collodi rewrote that part. He rewrote the story to make it a redemptive ending instead. And I'm really glad that Disney chose the restoration story instead of just killing Pinocchio off, however much the dork may have deserved it. Um, <laughs> but what intrigues me most, as I research this, what intrigued me most is the why. Why did Disney choose the story of restoration over one of mere judgment? And it wasn't just for sales or awards. Actually, remember the cultural context. 1940, the world is embroiled in a horrible protracted graphic war. Movies were actually very dark, and cartoons in those days were not stories for children. They were, they were for adults. The answer for why Disney chose the restorative ending seems to be found in what Walt Disney did on Sundays. You see, he was a very committed churchgoer. Uh, Walt Disney grew up attending church and reading the Bible, a practice he continued all through his adulthood. And in Scripture, there is a marvelous theme. It's repeated over and over and over. The theme is this. People don't get what they deserve. Th those who trust Yahweh receive his grace and his restoration instead of the hanging that they deserve. In fact, in fact we who trust God are changed by his grace. You know what happens? We, we become real boys and girls. Because of his grace, wooden numbskulls like us become his own children. By his grace, we're made holy. Let me, let me show you a perfect example. Open your Bible, Zephaniah. It's near the end of your Old Testament. Turn to Zephaniah, find Zephaniah 3, and let's read verses 13 and 14. Zephaniah 3, 13 and 14. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths, but they will pasture and lie down with nothing to make them afraid. 
Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Stop there. God gives us a glimpse of this beautiful future where the remnant of Israel is made holy. By the way, if you're taking notes, a practice I highly recommend, you will see that inside our bulletin. You're going to need your bulletin later. You might as well open it now. On the inside of your bulletin, you'll find notes, and you'll see that headline, The Remnant of Israel is Made Holy. Two big things to note here. First, there is no more depravity, dishonesty, or distress. God's redeemed people stop lying. Their noses stop growing. They don't hang out with nasty foxes and cats. They, they do what's right instead. The, the typical Hebrew writing style is really instructive here. Look, look, this is called antithetical parallelism. Do not be thrown by the fancy term. I'll explain it. It's, it's really very simple. Okay, we got four ideas in verse 13, and they're arranged in a corresponding fashion. Okay, first, first thing you see, God mentions people doing wrong. See that? Then, then comes the telling of lies. Next, the antithesis of lying is brought up. You see that? No deceit. It's the antithetical parallel of telling lies. Therefore, the last line must be the opposite of doing wrong. And what is the opposite of doing wrong? Look at, look at this brilliant poetry. It is to pasture and lie down with nothing to fear. Pasture is a form of the old Hebrew word reah. Uh, reah always is used to flocks that are at rest because they're protected. Uh, reah implies a shepherd that is perfectly guarding the sheep, allowing them to, to pasture, to lie down in peace. So what, is, what does that tell us? That in the age to come, which is the context here, the good shepherd will be present with restored Israel, ensuring perfect peace for them. With that in mind, look at our opposite parallel, doing wrong. The text teaches, think folks, think. The text teaches that doing wrong is the opposite of lying down with no fear. In other words, doing wrong yourself, not anyone else, doing wrong yourself is the number one cause of human fear. This is a truth that our current age has conveniently forgotten. Today, one of the most popular tactics across all ages and realms of society is to claim that you are afraid, that you're being bullied, that someone's picking on you, they're hurting your feelings. But upon investigation, we sometimes find that that afraid person just wants a cover that allows them to continue doing wrong. Before you write me a defensive outrage letter, yes, I know there are bullies who need their noses punched in. Yes, there is injustice in this world that should be righted, as we discussed earlier in Zephaniah. That's true. But God shows that much of the time, the lack of rest is due to each human's desire for evil. For example, think about that employee. All right, think about that employee or that student who just can't produce because the environment at work or school is just too hostile, right? It's just too hostile for them. Actually, we find out when we look into it that that person is usually ju just using supposed or even real oppression, just using that as a foil for his own laziness, his own doing wrong. And this certainly applies to Christians who do the same nonsense. Yes, there are legitimate issues of persecution against Christians. Yes, there are. But much of what comes down to Jesus' people today is not persecution. People scream, I'm being repressed. But what they really want is to continue doing wrong. Christians, listen carefully. Listen very carefully. Much of the time, you are not being persecuted because of Jesus. You're being corrected because you're a bunch of haughty jerks. The Apostle Peter affirms this principle even when he's writing to Christians who were living under genuine persecution. He's writing people who really are being persecuted. Look what he says, 1 Peter 3. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? 
But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And here he quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Close quote. Peter understands Zephaniah. Sometimes there is real persecution. But even as you stand up for justice, and yes, you should, make sure that you are at rest in your soul because you are only doing what is good. Right? Think this through, friends. Think it through. In his kingdom to come, Jesus will provide perfect protection for his people and he will cleanse them of all their depravity and their dishonesty. We tend to major on the protection and justice aspects of Messiah, and that's fine as long as we don't miss the bigger problem of the wickedness in our own souls. Notice this. Would you just look at your text? Notice that God doesn't put persecution as the antithetical parallel to resting in the Lord. It's not persecution he puts there. It is our own desire to do wrong that keeps people from lying down in peace. Now that God has offended every one of us, and no doubt filled my email box for tomorrow, (laughs) he takes us to a very happy scene. Lots of rooting and rejoicing. Read verse 14 again. Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. Notice again Hebraic parallelism, right? Daughter Zion, Israel, daughter Jerusalem. Those are all synonyms for the Jewish people gathered under Messiah in the land. And and sing for joy. Shout loudly. Be glad. Rejoice heartily. Those are all parallels for an appropriate response to the God of salvation. God promises to remove distress, dishonesty, all sin from inside and outside of all those Jews who trust him. And in the same way, do you know this? In the same way, you Gentiles, you Gentiles have, by faith, been grafted into the blessings of Israel. Read with me. From the book of Romans, uh, we'll read from chapter 9 and 11. You take the underlined text, okay? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. Chapter 11, you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. How cool is that? The the blessings that will be Israel's are also yours, even if you are Jewish. How can you thank God for that? What what is the appropriate response? Look at Zephaniah 3.14. It's to sing for joy, shout loudly, be glad, rejoice heartily. So let's practice. We're going to practice with a loud shout. Look, I'm an old camp director. I can't miss an opportunity to make people yell. Okay, it's part of what we do. Um, So on the count of three, you're going to just, just shout with joy to the Lord that he's grafted you into the blessings of Israel. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to shout so loudly that it totally messes with those poor guys in the back. I want their sound levels to be completely messed up. I want to see their hair being pulled out and they're coming unglued. You ready? Count of three, loud shout for joy to the Lord who has restored us. One, one and a half, two, three. Yeah! That's awesome. Just awesome. All right, now, read verses 15 through 20. With that ringing in your ears, go to the rest of the text. The Lord has removed your punishment. He's turned back. It's okay. You'll be all right. He's turned back your enemy. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. See, I told you it'd be okay. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. 
I will save the lame and gather the scattered. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time, I will bring you back. Yes, at that time, I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, Yahweh has spoken. Stop there. As we point out on the right side of our notes, all of this is because of Yahweh. One theme running through that, and it's the covenant God, Yahweh. All that holiness that's, that's coming to Israel then, that comes to the Jewish Gentile church now, it's all because of God. We can't make ourselves holy. God does it. Look, look deeply at what the Lord does. He removes punishment and enemies. This is decidedly different from the activity of the pagan gods who were worshipped by Zephaniah's contemporaries. Look, the pagan gods demanded that the humans sacrifice to support them. Okay, Pagan god demands, humans must bring me sacrifice, must do exactly the right formula, must bring the right things. Or, you know what the pagan god did? He turned his anger and he hurt those humans for not, for not bringing him what he wanted. All right? You know what you hope for if you were a pagan? You hope for the opportunity to have a really strong or really noble human leader. If you had a really powerful human leader, either really noble or really strong, that human leader could, could stand between you and the God and could fight off the anger of the God. If your human leader was noble enough, he could even get that God, that pagan God, to turn his anger toward your enemies instead. That's paganism. The gods are capricious. Only if the humans are especially noble or mighty can they manage to turn the pagan god's anger toward enemies. In contrast, look at verse 19. This is shocking language to the pagan world. Yahweh, the covenant God, will turn on the enemies of his people, but it's not because of anything notable in the people themselves. God's people are seen in their real state, lame, disgraced, scattered, afflicted. We are not rescued because of anything special in us. Our punishment and our enemies are removed only because of God's grace. Here again, as he does so well, Zephaniah offers a prescient preview of the cross. This was what was promised throughout the prophets, that the Messiah himself would bear our sins. He would be wounded for us so our punishment could be removed. Isaiah puts it so beautifully. Listen, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, we're healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Messiah Jesus removes punishment by taking it on himself. He eliminates enemies not because we're wonderful, but because he is. Because he is and he's present. Don't miss the promise of presence. Verses 15 and 17. You see that? The triune God is present with his people, and God's presence changes everything. Yahweh is the present Father who loves wooden people like us, transforming us into real boys and girls, into his children. Look, this is describing more than just the normal omnipresence of the Almighty God. This is detailing, his presence is detailing an engaged, intimate relationship between God and people. It's you know what this is? It's the difference between a father who's home, maybe watching television, and a daddy who carries you upstairs to bed and prays with you before you go to sleep, right? C consider this presence in the cultural context, right? In instead of merely a human warrior who is leading people against the capricious, flawed God, right? What we have here is God himself as the holy warrior, calling people to himself as the rallying point, fighting against a capricious and flawed world. 
And even before these millennial events that Zephaniah describes for the future, God shows that his presence, even today, his presence changes everything. For example, let's just think about your world. Okay, you're, you're a church. Matthew 18 is the first use of the word church in the Bible. In Matthew 18, Jesus details the very arduous work that's going to be involved in spiritually building his church, in spiritually leading his churches. But Jesus promises in Matthew 18 that that work's going to be doable, that that work will be lasting. Why? How, how do we know the hard work of redeemed community is going to spiritually succeed? Because Jesus is with us. Look what he says. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. Read it with me. Everybody, just line by line together. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. You know what that means? God's word says that even with an idiot like me leading, your church can prosper. Why? Because Jesus is present. He's present. This is possibly the most important aspect of restoration, the very presence of God. He, he also inspires strength for eternal work. See the end of verse 16? God says, do not let your hands grow weak. Now, to understand this comment, we've got to remember two things. Okay, two things. Number one, hands in ancient cultures are used as shortcuts. Okay? Almost every time when you see hand mentioned in any ancient text, it's as a shortcut for all the work of that person, especially all the creative work of that person. That's what's meant by hand. Second thing, we must also realize the millennial rest that Zephaniah describes is not inactive. It's not. Jesus' coming physical kingdom is going to be one of great productivity. Same thing is true of our eternal rest that is coming for those church Jews and Gentiles who are bound together trusting in Messiah Jesus. Our eternal state is not inactive. There may be no more ridiculous perversion of Scripture than the idea that our eternity is sitting around on clouds doing nothing. Ah! It is not biblical. Instead, our eternity involves creatures who are perfected and glorified and working very hard. A, a work, get this, you know what our work is going to be like with our hands for eternity? It's going to be a work without sin. This is a pretty old book. It's a sci-fi piece by Harold Myra. It's titled Escape from the Twisted Planet. It was this book, years ago, this book first made me consider what was a totally foreign idea, that we would have an eternity of hard work that would be creative work without sin, without any sin. Here, I, I just want to read you a little piece, okay? Uh, the little piece I want to read you, David, the protagonist, uh, he has been spirited by God. God's taken him away to a planet uh, where there's no sin, okay? The Adam and Eve on this planet never fell. There's no sin on this planet, and the people are incredibly productive. David's flying along in a spaceship made by one of the people of this planet, and, um, and he saw, here's what he saw. He saw a huge network of non-natural beams precisely simulating the rectangular tree trunks of that land, and the beams arched up and in and out, supporting what looked like a geodesic dome miles across in diameter. It, it, it sheltered a vast series of valleys and mountains below, and there were free fluids comprising a river, lakes, waterfalls. Their vehicle dipped quickly into a valley, still flying at high speed, past lovely blue hills with blue waterfalls and canyons and timber areas of the square trees of that place reaching up, touching only the free air. Quite an achievement for your people to have structured this fantastic dome over the valley, David commented. David was very much impressed. He had a feeling akin to that one has upon first seeing the Rockies. 
It was not only the vast heights which awed him, but also the unique beauty. The place was like the flaming foliage of a New England autumn, but all in mosaic blues. Thoughts were entering David's mind from the man. These people communicate telepathically. The thoughts succinctly explained that this man alone had erected all the beams, gouged out the valleys, run the courses for the waterways, imported the trees from other worlds to create this entire subworld below the stinging heat of above. It, it was something like flying over New York in a helicopter and being told by the pilot that he himself had constructed all the bridges and buildings and raised the island itself. And yet somehow David could not doubt the man, for these folks couldn't lie. How long did it take you? David asked. The man's response was specific, but, but not specific to David because he had no idea of this kind of recording of time. The thought conveyed seemed like several centuries, and yet the man looked no older than 25. Close quote. Wow. Now, I read that as a young adult, and I was in awe of this concept. When I read this book, suddenly the Bible's depiction of creature perfection and strengthened hands for work in eternity without sin, it began to make sense. All right, you ready for the weirdest part? Weirdest part of the story. I had just finished that novel. It was one weekend. I had just finished it, uh, and I was house-sitting for a fairly famous family in the town I lived. In Tyler, Texas, pretty wealthy, famous family had asked me to house-sit for them. The phone rang right as I finished this book. I put the book down. I had been instructed not to answer the phone. I was to let it go to machine every time, okay? The phone rang. I put the book down. <sighs> I hear the voice that comes through the answer machine, and it says, Hello, Bob. This is Harold Myra. I'm working on a new book. I wanted, I wanted so much to grab the phone and say, Hi, I'm Wayne. I'm 21. You don't know me, but I love your book. <laughs> I now, thanks to you, I understand Zephaniah 316. I didn't do that. I left poor Mr. Myra alone. But I'm very grateful for him to better understand how the Lord strengthens my hands for eternal work. Now, let's read the most famous verses in Zephaniah. Again, uh, 17 and 20 of chapter 3 are the most famous verses in all of Zephaniah. Verse 17, Yahweh your God is among you. A warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. I want to read it again from the New American Standard Version because I think there's some things that are a little bit brought out here. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. That's, that's a nice translation. He will exult over you with joy. He'll be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. And verse 20, at that time, I will bring you in. Even at the time when I gather you together, indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. God rejoices over and loves and delights in his people. Yes, yes, this is about the restoration of Israel in the coming kingdom. That's the context. And yet, the principle here applies to every one of those people today who are part of God's redeemed community. This is how God loves. Look, look at the amazing message. The omnipresent God is a victorious warrior. He conquers all that is evil, even in the souls of his people. And he shouts. That's what, that's what warriors do. Hoorah! They shout, right? This is, this is pumped God right here. He is excited over you. My colleagues at Watchtower Baptist University, uh, Danny Hayes and Scott Duval, have a great comment on this. Look what they say. Have you ever thought that God gets so excited over the salvation of people, he starts singing? M many people picture God as somber and cold, an old man with a beard sitting on a throne and scowling at everyone. 
Zephaniah pictures God as singing and rejoicing over those who are saved, overflowing with excitement and joy to the extent that he breaks out in joyful song, close quote. Now look again at verse 17. Sandwiched here between those repetitions of warrior joyfully singing and shouting, what do we see? We, th we see this soft, thoughtful line of love. The powerful conqueror is also the tender lover. He's a tender warrior. As I've pointed out before, this is where we get the idea of a gentleman. God, who could just obliterate us, chooses to, to quietly love us instead. Now think like an author, okay? God's the greatest author who ever lived, and, uh, and he had Zephaniah record it this way on purpose. Why put that quiet love in the middle of the loud joy? Why? Why do that? It's to set it off, sure, the Hebrew poets often did that. But I tell you, I think it was done this way because the two ideas are actually interconnected. The very tenderness of God's love for me is inextricably wrapped up in a warrior's joyful shout. There is a wildness that is released in my soul when I respond to God's tender love. I don't like everything about John Eldridge's uh, famous book, Wild at Heart, but he is brilliant in his understanding of how Zephaniah 3.17 relates to our lives. God's love is wild. It is warlike, even when it's tender in the middle. Made in God's image, Eldridge shows how humans can and should reflect this wildness. He points out that our deepest, even our deepest love is couched in a passionate fight for that love. Look, look, look what he writes. He says, he, God, created Adam for adventure, battle, and beauty. He created us for a unique place in his story, and he is committed to bringing us back to the original design. Eve is a life giver. She's Adam's ally. It is to both of them the charter for adventure is given. It will take both of them to sustain life, and they will both need to fight together, close quote. Amen. Even quiet, committed marital love, as you know, takes great fighting effort. That is loving like God loves. All restoration is because of Yahweh. And notice how it is that he restores. Look, it's through his word. Very last line, verse 20. Yahweh has spoken. He's spoken. You ever wonder why? I mean, really, you ever just think about, why did God speak? Theologian J.I. Packer thought on this a great deal. He penned a fantastic little book answering that question. Why has God spoken? Called it God Has Spoken. I'm going to skip Packer's excellent survey of Scripture. I just want to give you his summary. Here's his summary answer, and I think it's spot on. Our favorite Welshman, Dr. Packer, says this. Next to you, Alan. You're our favorite Welshman. Second favorite Welshman. He says, why has God spoken? He's self-sufficient. He does not need men's gifts or service, right? He's not pagan. He's the real God. He doesn't need anything. He goes on, to what end then does he bother to speak to us? The truly staggering answer which the Bible gives to this question is that God's purpose in Revelation is to make friends with us. A relation not like that between a man and his dog, but like that of a father to his son or a husband to his wife. Loving friendship between two persons has no ulterior motive. It is an end in itself. And this is God's end in Revelation. He speaks to us simply to fulfill the purpose for which we are made. That is, to bring into being a relationship in which he is a friend to us and we to him. Close quote. All God's people said. <laughs> this has been a running theme in Zephaniah. Just like God's presence, his word is repeatedly emphasized in our text. Multiple times in this study, we've heard God say, this is the Lord's declaration. R remember the point of the text. 
God restores. He changes his people, and it all comes through him. It all happens via God's presence and his word. Now, with that in mind, let me ask you a question. It's a very serious question. How well are we living as people of the restoration? God, God desires, and he provides for us to be in this restored relationship with him. Are we taking full advantage of that? I want to give you a little assessment, okay? I want to give you a little assessment. I haven't done this in a while. I've put together seven questions for each of us to answer. Please, I told you you would need your bulletin. Look at it now. There's a space for you to answer each of these seven questions. Please get something with which to write. Um, somebody near you has at least eight Frisco Bible pens in her purse, uh, which is great. We want those scattered all over the world. So uh, borrow one of her pens with her permission. Don't ever dig in someone's purse without permission. Thank you. And, uh, and if you would get one of those pens and get ready, everybody, I want you to answer. Answer for yourself. Here's the first question. You're going to answer a four, a three, a two, or a one on each one. You can put down a number. One, two, three, or four. All right. First question. I let him, God, guide me away from dishonesty, fear, and all sin. I let him guide me away from sin. Put a four if this is you. I, I'm humbly growing in this. I am growing in this. God is increasingly guiding me away from sin. Put a three if this is you. I see some victory, but I still have regular Regular defeats. Put a two if this is you. I coddle pet sins. I mean, just, just to be honest, there are certain sins that, are, that I, I treasure. And put a one if this is you. I redefine sin according to my wishes. I am the arbiter of right and wrong for everything, not the Lord. If we happen to agree, that's fine. If we don't, then I'm right. Okay? One, two, three, or four. Number two, question number two. I rest in Jesus. What we're talking about here, this idea of, of rest, reya. Four, continually. Three, occasionally. Two, rarely. One, put this, if your question is, what is rest? Or, or who is Jesus? Okay, that, that's a one. Question number three. I work hard, my hands, I work hard as part of his rest. You see, they're connected in the text. Four. I, I dig into life, and, and I am fruitful by God's grace. I really am fruitful, and it is, it is by God's empowering that I'm fruitful. That's a four. Put a three if this is you. Sometimes I am productive. I really am. There are some times that I'm productive. Two, I work hard. I do work hard, but it's not, it's not by his strength. It's, it's by my flesh, by my power. That's, that's where my hard work comes from. And number one, I do not work. I'm entitled. Okay? I, don't, I don't work hard. I'm entitled not to work hard. Question number four, I delight in God's presence and I, I talk to him. Four, continually. Three, occasionally. Two, rarely, like maybe at meals, you know. And one, only at church. It's the only time I ever, I ever pray, ever delight in his presence. Number five, I rejoice with Jesus. I do rejoice. Four, continually rejoice. Three, occasionally. Two, and I think a lot of us need to put two on this one. I do rejoice with Jesus only if everything is exactly the way I want it. Then I, then I praise God. Number one, put a one if this is you. I'd rather complain, frankly. I just, I don't want to lose the right to complain. That's what I'd rather do. Number six, I accept him. I accept Messiah Jesus as the mighty warrior and lover of my soul. Four, put a four if this is you. I accept him with gladness. 
Three, so, sometimes in my sanctification, I accept him as the warrior and lover of my soul. But, but other times, I, I push him away. I really do. I, just, I push God away. That's a three. Put a two if this is you. I rarely accept him because I'm not worthy. I'm just, I, I'm not worthy of his love. I don't care what he says about the fact that he makes me worthy. I'm not worthy of anybody to fight for me. And put a one if this is you. Never. I don't accept him as warrior and love my soul because I don't, I don't need his love. I don't need it. That's a one. Question number seven. I study his words. Four. Regularly. Three. On Sundays, if Wayne is interesting. <laughs> Not like today, when he's interesting. Number two. Rarely study his word. Num put a one if this is you. I already know it all. I know it all. I don't need to study anymore. Okay? Now, add up your scores. 4 plus 2 plus 1 plus 3. Your highest score possible is 28. Your lowest is 7, just because I didn't put a 0 in this particular assessment. And by the way, uh, I do have to give a disclaimer. Um, normally, I don't give you any assessments until I have had the fun of, of piloting them past at least 100 different people where I have some scientific certainty of the effectiveness. I have not been able to do that with this one. Okay, So this may be slightly skewed, but here's what I've seen so far. I just want to share with you what I've seen so far. And the people to whom I've given this assessment, here's what I've seen. If your scores came in between 16 and 22, uh, I mean between 23 and 28, 23 and 28, you, you are effectively practicing the presence and the Word of God. And I just want to say, well done. Keep, keep it up so you can enjoy continual restoration. Good for you. That would be between 23 and 28. If your assessment came in between 16 and 22, then you're missing out, you're missing out on a lot of the wild at heart adventure that God has for you. For, for a number of reasons, and, and let's be quite honest, possibly including just flat-out laziness, okay? You, you are falling short of the joyful, joyful discipline with which God partners with us so that he can change our lives. We're justified by grace alone through faith alone. We are sanctified by God's grace through faith and work. And you're not doing the work. Just be honest. Please, get into a Bible study or a discipleship group. We have scads of them where you can grow. You can grow. Just do it online right now. Go back, talk to the info booth after the service. If your score fell between 10 and 15, you're probably facing some serious blockades that are holding you back. I strongly urge you, please, I urge you to sit down with one of our pastors so that, so that we can help you understand what it is to engage in God's holiness. It's a beautiful thing. And those blockades can melt away. It's what God does. And if you scored below a 10, uh, well, first of all, you're incredibly honest. That's nice. Um, and you're desperately in need. Please let us help you. Remember, God wants to be your friend, right? And so, so do we. Call the church office. Call them this week and, and, and let us meet with you and help get you into a Bible study. God promises restoration. And, and we want everybody to be a part of it. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. Friends? That completes the last message in our church year. Thus endeth the last one, right? This was, this was the very final piece of our annual theme that began way back last September, um, and our annual theme was to be more than conquerors. I cannot imagine a more fitting conclusion. Think about it. In all of the battles of life, both internal and external battles, this is how we conquer. We triumph by God's presence and His Word. All God's people said? Amen. Pray with me, please. Father. I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, 
that we conquer by your grace and for your glory. And Father, I pray for anyone, anyone who is studying with us, and I'm sure there are many, who don't have a relationship with you through faith in Jesus. I beg you to do what you do and convert them right now. Listen, friend. You, you are not holy. You're just as wooden as all the rest of us. But God desires to change you and to make you not just a real boy or girl, to make you his own child forever. You know how he provided for that? He sent his only child, Jesus, fully God, fully man, who died on the cross willingly, as Isaiah said so beautifully, taking sin on himself for everyone who would trust him. Trust him right now. Just talk to God. Tell him, I, I am a sinner. I cannot save myself. That's a fact. And I trust the salvation you've provided in Jesus. I accept you amazing as it is, though I don't deserve it. I accept your grace that you are the wild lover of my soul. And I believe in Jesus who loves me. He died for me and rose from the dead. He is alive. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, act on it. Raise your hand right now. Raise your hand and just look up at me. Good for you. Praise God. Father, I pray for all these believers in Christ that every one of us will know what it is by your grace to conquer through your presence and your word. as you rejoice over us with gladness. Father, I pray that in everything I do today, in the offering we're about to take, let me give out of, out of joy and delight for how you have given to me, not idiotic paganism, trying to force your hand, but because I'm so grateful to you. Father, I pray when I'm, when I'm eating lunch and talking to people and listening and when I'm watching Jordan Spieth roar back and win the Barclays tournament today, um, when I'm watching the Rangers destroy the evil Cleveland Indians, whatever is going, that was for you. Yeah, whatever, is, whatever I'm doing today, Lord, let it be done by your presence and your word. Because that really does make all the difference. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.